What we see uh, in general in tax selection in developing countries and what we see in the setting of the DRC, which is uh, where I do work, is typically government relying on simpler tools. Basically, the rule they adopt is, you know, uh, prioritize the, how easy it is to collect taxes. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifontaire. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Augustin Bergeron is an economist interested in development economics, political economy, and public economics. He is a postdoctoral fellow at the Stanford King Center on Global Development. In September 2022, he will join USC's Department of Economics as an assistant professor. I asked him to tell me about his research agenda, focusing on the determinants of state capacity, or to say it simply, what can governments do to improve tax collection in developing countries? Well, thank you very much, Augustin, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So in your own research, you study ways to increase tax revenue in states with low capacity. And I wanted to start by focusing on this notion of state capacity, why it matters in economics, and particularly in the context of the least developed countries that you're looking at uh, and that you're going to talk about uh, today. Great. I think it's a great place uh, where to start. And, and I, I will kind of start by giving you, uh, I guess, my definition and my understanding uh, of state capacity. And the way I think of it is essentially as the you know, the state capacity um, to implement the kind of policies that the government uh, wants to enact. Uh, but you can still understand it a bit further by, you know, using the categories that were uh, introduced by two economists, so Tim Besley and Jordan Pearson, who distinguish between uh, the extractive capacity of the state and the productive capacity of the state. So the, the way they understand is the extractive capacity of the state is Typically, uh, the ability that the state has to achieve a certain uh, revenue uh, target through tax collection. While the productive capacity is what it does with this tax money and essentially the provision of public goods, the enforcement of contract or like correcting externalities. So that's more on the productive side of the economy. And so those two are, are like the, the, their definition of, of state capacity. And the reason why I think it matters for development and why it matters in, especially in developing countries is that we do see uh, pretty stark differences in governments uh, in states' uh, capacity across the world today. So uh, to focus on kind of the extractive capacity, uh, we see that, you know, high-income countries collect about 40% in, of their GDP uh, in taxes versus low-income countries collect about 10% of their GDP, so much lower number. Uh, and, and, you know, this difference is even more stark if we look at the uh, absolute uh, numbers uh, in the sense of simply looking at dollars per person per year. What we see is that, you know, in the DRC where I do work, uh, you know, the government collect about $60 per person per year. So that's, you know, low amounts. And we can contrast it with what the government does in the U.S. Uh, today, which is collecting about $22,000 uh, per, per individual per year. So much lower uh, extractive capacity in the DRC than uh, in the US. And now looking at the consequence of this lower capacity uh, on, on the government's uh, productive capacity, we see that it, of course, leads to differences in, uh, you know, the government's ability to enforce contracts uh, and public good provision. So in Kananga, where I do work, you know, roads are in bad shape. There's very little electrification. Uh, there is no access to, uh, to you know, 
uh, uh, to water, and there's few public infrastructure, so few public schools, a uh, few public health infrastructure. So you know that's kind of the lay of the land, uh, and so I think it's 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 quite important to to understand you know both aspects, this kind of extractive capacity and the productive capacity, and that's kind of where uh, my research uh, has been uh, focusing on. One aspect of your research that I really enjoyed is that the fact you were trying to investigate the different layers and the whole architecture of tax collection. And that means looking at who collects taxes, how much is collected, how you collect taxes, and the economic costs and benefits of each of these channels. Could you tell us more about these different layers that are present in your research? Yeah, I think that's that's a, a great point. And kind of stepping back a little bit, I think what's key to understand or the way I understand it is that there's another difference, you know, between high income countries and low income countries that is simply kind of the policy tools they have access to to kind of build their uh, this extractive capacity we just discussed. Uh, and so what it looks like in practice is that in high income countries, when you observe tax systems today, what you see is that government typically rely on third party reported taxes. And so third party means like, you know, a third party reports uh, to the government, uh, you know, what they paid uh, to different, you know, to their, their employee, for example. So, for example, payroll taxes are, are third party reported. The firm that pays an employee reports to the government how much it paid. Uh, social security taxes are, of course, also third party reported. And, and so that's the prevalent, you know, mode of tax collection in developed countries or in high income countries. And what it's been, uh, shown by economists is that those are associated with high level of, of enforcement and near perfect compliance because there's so much check and the government has the capacity to kind of investigate thoroughly those, uh, you know, amounts, there's uh, very little tax delinquency or tax evasion. But the constraint that low-income countries face is that they don't have access to uh, such uh, third-party reported taxes, partly because of the low level of formalization in the economy. So there's, you know, a uh, low, level, low level of, you know, uh, bank uh, penetration in the DRC, so banks don't communicate information uh, to the government, and there's few formal firms. Most of the firms in, in, in developing countries are non-formal, and so they don't report to the government uh, what they pay to their employee. So that's also a, a reason why the, the government has less uh, information. And so typically, low-income countries are constrained kind of in their ability to achieve a high level of enforcement because they have less access to, to policy tools. And so what we see uh, in general in tax selection in developing countries and what we see in the setting of the DRC, which is uh, where I do work, is typically government relying on simpler tools. And, and basically the rule they adopt is, you know, uh, prioritize the how easy it is to collect taxes. So you'll have more reliance on simplified tax instruments. Uh, so the property tax, which I study uh, in, in my setting, is such a tax that's uh, simpler in the sense that it taxes an immobile asset, so you know properties don't move around, uh, and it's visible. It's easy to collect because you can send someone, you can check the value of the property, etc. So that's one of the reasons why the government, for example, uh, focuses on the property tax rather than an income tax, for example. But you see it in you know the importance of, of for example, trade taxes that are also some kind of simplified indirect tax. And it also means the fact that the government has less access to information from firms and banks that it's going to rely on. Uh, different form of tax uh, collection that are more in-person uh, and less digital. So you'll see more, uh, you know, tax visits by individuals, by the tax collector. That's that's the norm in the DRC, uh, which I study. 
you will see also more in deliver uh, in person delivery of tax bills, uh, which is you know the other way that the government collect taxes. So that's that's kind of the lay of the land, and I think it's important to understand this initial difference because it also means that when discussing what type of policy tools the government want to implement, you know you really want to understand in this context of uh, having low access to you know uh, to policy tools being constrained in the set of tools. Uh, you have to increase revenue. What are still like ways to improve those suboptimal, in some sense, uh, uh, policy levers that the government has? So you can't really just study the tools that are like the norm in high income countries and kind of project those in, in low income countries, uh, in, in, in my view. So we can easily imagine that studying the impact of the tools that these governments have in hand to see how it affects tax revenue will be empirically challenging. And uh, I wanted you to talk a bit more about your setting. So you look at a particular province of DRC. And can you tell us about how you started working in this context? And what were the key steps that you basically initiated to establish connections, for instance? Yeah, so I think that's, that's actually quite interesting uh, uh, how it all started. So what happened is that uh, in 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 2015, uh, there was a, a political event in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, which was uh, called in French the découpage, which is essentially that the the the, the president or the, the the government decided to split the number of provinces uh, from an initial number of 11 to 26, uh, and what it meant for uh, Kanunga, uh, where where I do work, is that the Kasai region uh, lost part of its territory. And in particular, they lost a diamond-rich region, that's uh, Chikapa, uh, that, it, that went to another province. Um, and so suddenly they were facing a, a huge drop in, 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 in revenues that they needed to, to fill quite uh, urgently. On top of that, this kind of loss in revenue was further magnified because the government decided to tell the provinces that they needed to be autonomous. And so they would not receive you know, transfer from the central government and that they needed to to figure things out uh, on, on their own. So the government was really kind of struggling to uh, to match the, the loss in, in revenue. So by our estimates, you know, the, the diamond money alone was about 40% of the revenue of the province. And so what they what they did is to fill this gap, they decided to turn to uh, the property tax. Uh, and this was, you know, we discussed the, the, the fact that property tax is potentially a, a simple policy tool that government can use. And that's part of the reason why they, they focus on the property tax. So it's it's thought as, as efficient because properties are immobile. Uh, it's easy to tax. You can go and assess the value of the property. And the third reason the government had in mind was that Kenonga, but generally like the DRC and Africa uh, as, as, as a whole, is urbanizing very uh, fast. Uh, and what they had in mind is that, you know, uh, you kind of want to tax the increase in value uh, of the property that's coming along with this uh, urbanization. So that's uh, also was one of the reason. And uh, the government, you know, decided to basically initiate this property tax collection for the first time. Uh, and they put in place a system of door-to-door -door tax collection where the tax collector would first do a, a property registration, so a form of census of the properties in the city, just to have a sense of who is there, you know, and, and who could be taxed. And then they went in person, door to door, uh, to collect taxes. Uh, you know, using handheld receipt printers uh, to to give a receipt to the taxpayers. And so that's the the long introduction uh, uh, to to uh, where we stepped in. But what happened is after this initial tax campaign, 
that took place in 2016. The government was simply looking at kind of the, the financial results of the campaign, you know, how much money brought in, what were the limits, and they were essentially asking, how can we do better? So this first campaign raised compliance from close to 0% to, to 10%, but still like 90% of people were tax delinquents. So the government wanted to find ways to, to do better. And that's the step where we were involved in, uh, trying to brainstorm different policy levers uh, that the governments were trying to, to use to raise uh, revenue. And they, they brought uh, three kind of angles uh, uh, that, that they thought were potentially interesting to, to, to you know, implement and to study. The first one was you know, involving local elites in tax collection. So they had this view that maybe relying on traditional authorities could be a way to, to kind of increase their, their fiscal capacity. Uh, the second angle they had in mind was this idea of modifying uh, tax rates or experimenting on the amount they were asking. Part of uh, their concern was maybe they were asking amounts that were too high. And the third angle they had in mind is maybe there was a problem of collusion uh, between tax collectors or between collectors and citizen. And so they were starting to think about, can you know the assignment of the tax collector be modified to uh, improve tax collection? And so you know we had like a, a long period of discussion with the government, just discussing those problems, the solution they had in mind, and then working with them to conduct randomized evaluation of these uh, different uh, dimension, and then uh, importantly Im also evaluate the impact of these intervention on citizens, you know, tax morale, trust of the government. Uh, after the government intervention. So that was also part of, uh, of our uh, involvement. La minute technique. So in this podcast, researchers take about one minute to try to explain one technical aspect of their work. And I thought it would be maybe useful to introduce the concept of revenue maximizing tax rate. Why is it relevant for this government to have this concept in mind? I think it's an important idea in this context. And the main point behind it is this relationship between tax revenue and tax rates. And the idea that uh, tax revenue as a hump-shaped or a, you know inverted U-shape uh, relationship with the tax rates. Uh, and so if, you, you know, if you're uh, below the peak of this revenue curve, uh, increasing tax rate will increase revenue. But if you're above the peak, then increasing tax rate will lead to lower revenue. And so why is this curve, you know, a, a thing? Uh, to unpack it a little bit, you, you want to think about what are the responses to changes in tax rate. Uh, and there's actually two different changes that happen if the government decides to uh, jack up its tax rate. The first one is that for all the individuals who pay the tax, the taxpayers, tax rate go up, and so they pay a higher amount. And that's what economists call uh, typically the mechanical effect, that is just Every single taxpayer now pays a higher amount, and that means government revenue go up. At the same time, when you increase tax rate, there's a second effect, which is that some taxpayer might decide to go another way, which is simply being dissatisfied with the increase in tax rate. They might decide to uh, be tax delinquent in the context of the Congo, so they just stop paying, or they might choose tax avoidant or you know evasion, so either send their money elsewhere or report their money as a different uh, type of money, so income shifting. Uh, and essentially just, you know, evade some of their tax liability uh, or the full amount of it. And that effect leads to a decline in, in government revenue. You know, that's typically called by economists the behavioral response uh, to change in tax rate. And what's important uh, on top of understanding those two effects is to understand that, 
you know, what, what is important is which one will dominate in a specific context, right? If the mechanical effect is stronger than the behavioral response, essentially increasing tax rate will lead to more revenue. So in other words, uh, tax rates are below the revenue maximizing rate. Governments are, you know, can use their tax rate policy tool to increase revenue. But if the behavioral res- response is stronger now than the mechanical effect, then you're in the other situation. You're above the revenue maximizing rate. And what happens when you increase tax rate is that you get a decline in government revenue rather than an increase. And I think, um, you know, there's two things that in my mind are important about this context, especially in low income uh, settings, is that, you know, in a high income setting, what we see is that typically uh, tax rates are below the revenue maximizing rate. And so government can safely increase tax rate to generate more revenue. But what our work suggests is that in the DRC, what's happening is that the, the behavioral response to change in tax rates are actually very strong. Uh, once you increase tax rate, we see large decline in, in tax compliance and, in other words, huge increase in, in tax delinquency. That means that ultimately revenue go down at higher rates. And so suddenly, even though the government has low capacity uh, and low tax revenue, it cannot actually increase tax rate to get even more revenue. It's constrained in its capacity to do so. And so that's the first thing that's striking is like we're in a completely different setting in, in low income countries and in high income countries. Uh, the second thing that's quite interesting, uh, you know, in our result is that we do find that, you know, this, uh, revenue maximizing tax rate is not like a fundamental parameter of the economy that governments have no capacity to influence whatsoever. Uh, what we see is that essentially it's a function of the government enforcement capacity. So government can decide to invest in their enforcement capacity to attenuate this behavioral response we measured. So if the government can crack down on tax delinquency, crack down on avoidance and evasion, then this behavioral response is going to be muted and the mechanical effect is always going to predominate. Uh, but we don't have a great deal of empirical evidence for this. And what we do is essentially study this by studying uh, randomized intervention in enforcement and increase in enforcement. And what we see is exactly that, the, the behavioral response to change uh, in tax rates are diminished when the government invests in enforcement. And as a result, the revenue maximizing tax rate uh, shifts up, right? So the entire revenue curves move to the right. And so that means that the, you know, the, the, the maximum tax rate that the government can impose on its citizen is now higher. So you already introduced some aspects of your field experiment, but I wanted to ask you to walk us through what was actually the randomization? What did you manipulate that citizens or policymakers were facing that led you to this conclusion about uh, the revenue maximizing tax rate? Right. So I think, uh, so a bit of context of, of this uh, intervention that will help understand kind of uh, the design was that in 2016, uh, at, at the you know end of the first tax experiment, the tax campaign, the government also implemented a development fund that was, it was not a tax, but it was a voluntary contribution to public goods uh, in the city of Kanonga. And this this development fund was characterized by a very low amount. Uh, and it was actually seen as a wide success across the city uh, in, in the sense of it generated a lot of those voluntary compliance. Uh, so a lot of people just were you know, voluntarily uh, contributing to the fund. And that actually planted the idea in the government's mind that maybe reducing uh, the property tax rate would do the same, would increase tax compliance so much that it would increase revenue. That was like the government's kind of idea in those initial meetings I mentioned earlier about improving their tax system after the first property tax campaign. 
Uh, and, and to us, this raised kind of a set of interesting questions for, you know, public finance and development. So this idea of, you know, first when the state has low capacity uh, and a large fraction of, of individuals are tax delinquent, maybe lower rates would actually increase revenue by diminishing, you know, the fraction of, of those tax delinquents. Uh, but this might no longer be true if the government has other way to kind of diminish uh, the, the amount of tax delinquency, for example, through better enforcement. And so to investigate that, what uh, my co-authors and I did was uh, team up with the uh, provincial government uh, to, uh, to introduce a randomized experiment that, that varied the amount of tax that property owners uh, were facing. And so property owners in the control group were assigned to the status quo annual tax liability, while uh, property owners in the treatment group were assigned to lower tax liability uh, of different magnitudes. So it corresponded to a reduction of uh, either 17%, 33%, or, or 50%. So... You have been manipulating the tax rates, but not only this, you also had an experiment where you looked at tax enforcement itself and the role of delegation to local elites, as well as the composition of teams. What did you find when you implemented these different uh, experiments? Uh, yes, yeah, so on the uh, local elites, uh, essentially what we, what we did was uh, discussing with the government the fact that in a number of countries, you know, uh, and, and for example, Senegal or, or Ivory Coast were brought during the, the meeting with the government, you observe that local elites are in charge of tax collection. So local elites are those individuals who uh, typically resolve, you know, property disputes or provide public goods through informal taxes. That planted the idea in the government's mind that empowering the local elites in Kananga would raise revenue. But it's also, uh, as we said, it's a bit of a classic question, which is, is it optimal for the government to kind of use its own agent to collect taxes or to uh, decentralize uh, tax collection? So here we uh, again partnered with the provincial government to uh, implement a randomized controlled trial that evaluates exactly this question. So some neighborhoods were randomly assigned to tax collection by state agents, while others were randomly assigned to tax collection by local elites. And what we find when we evaluated this intervention is that Local elites are much better tax collector. Uh, they they uh, lead to uh, an increase in compliance by about 3.2 percentage points, and that's about a 43% uh, increase in tax revenue. And when we do look at the mechanism, what we find is that it has a lot to do with the information that those local elites have on individuals. So we implemented a third uh, intervention for, for another group of, of neighborhoods where state tax collector uh, were involved in collection, but in between the two key steps of tax selection, so in between the registration and the tax visits, they had a, a meeting with the local elite, with the chief, that lasted about half a day. And during that meeting, the local elite went over the property tax role and kind of listed for every single individual what's, according to them, the individual's uh, economic ability to pay and their willingness to pay. And what we see is that just this meeting was successful at increasing tax compliance for the state tax collector. They were able to use this information to essentially target individuals the same way as the chief do when they collect taxes. On the uh, assignment of tax collector, uh, the idea was, was slightly different to the motivation. The, the government has this idea that 
maybe part of you know a way to improve tax collection was to improve the assignment of tax collector and they were worried in particular that collectors might be colluding with citizens to extract bribes instead of tax payments so you know one one simple thing collector can do is say you know uh, you Clementine, instead of paying the tax, you know, you pay me a smaller amount, I'll pocket it, of course, but I won't bother you anymore. And so they were wondering, is there a way to kind of minimize those, you know, bribe payments simply through reshuffling uh, tax collectors, sending some collector to different neighborhoods, and also varying the composition of the teams of collectors, so collector work in pairs of or teams of two. And so what we did, we partnered with the government to randomly evaluate essentially the randomization of the composition of the collector teams and their assignment to neighborhoods. And that allowed us to estimate the optimal uh, assignment. And what we find is uh, evidence that the government would benefit from complete assortative matching. So uh, teaming up high uh, ability collectors together and low ability collectors together and sending the low ability teams to, you know, low propensity to pay neighborhoods and the high ability teams to high propensity to pay neighborhoods. And that overall, it would, you know, this optimal assignment would increase tax compliance and revenue by about 37%. So pretty big uh, increase. So that's kind of the overall view of, of the different interventions. So just one word about what government should incorporate from these results. If I were a policymaker myself, if I wanted to increase tax revenue, I should in some ways accept a little bit of bribing because overall I would gain. Is that, is that correct? My overall take on, on the intervention is, is kind of, in a sense, optimistic, I think, or cautiously optimistic, let's say, that I do think this suggests that, you know, that there are, uh, you know, low-cost tools that the government can use to uh, improve tax collection uh, in states with weak capacity. And uh, as you mentioned, we do look at other, you know, effects of, of this intervention, uh, including bribe payments, but also undermining tax morale, which could be a concern, or like alternate, you know, like diminishing trust in the government. And what we find is that, uh, you know, those interventions don't really undermine tax morale or trust in the government. So that's kind of the good news. You know, you, you can increase taxes without having those effects. But we do find, as you mentioned, some small effects on, on bribe. But importantly, I think they're kind of not large enough to qualify, you know, the policy implication of, of the policy. So to give you just one example on the project of, of, on empowering local elite to collect taxes, we do find an increase in bribes. So sending local elites to collect taxes lead to a significant increase in bribe payments by property owners. But if we compare the amount that's being paid in bribe and the amount of tax revenue that's collected, we see that the government would have to essentially value, you know, or dislike bribes 15 times more uh, than it likes uh, tax revenue uh, in order to prefer, you know, sending its own agent. So it kind of refines a little bit the implication. Uh, and that, that means that, you know, you might want to think harder about intervention that can, you know, diminish bribe payment. And that's part also of an interesting, I think, next step research agenda. But at least to the extent that we can measure it, uh, we still seem to see that, you know, the, the revenue gains kind of uh, win uh, over the, the, the bribe uh, costs. And so to conclude, I wanted to ask you if you had any recommendation for our listeners, a book or a movie or anything you would like to share with us. Uh, great. Uh, yes, I think I have. I had two. Uh, the first one is very related to, to all the things we've discussed. And it's uh, a book by two economists, so Michael Keane and Joel Slemrod, who've been working on tax collection for, you know, all their life, I think. Uh, 
And the, the title of the book is, is pretty much a mouthful. It's uh, Rebellion, Rascals, and Revenue. And what I like about this this book is that it, it kind of is at the core of the question, I think, which is really trying to understand the importance of building fiscal capacity for development uh, and seeing that, you know, fiscal capacity is kind of at every important step is in history is, is a key question. Uh, but also they bring it kind of one step further by just showing also that the the exact tools that we use and the way we design taxes, dramatic consequences. So if you design the system poorly, you can have tax re rebellions, you can have, you know, high dissatisfaction, you can have government collapses. And they do that by use, using, you know, historical examples from uh, across the world. And I, I do like the fact that they also kind of broaden the spectrum beyond uh, developed uh, economies, which sometimes, you know, uh, is, is the sole focus, but I think we gain from studying uh, other settings. The second one that's kind of, uh, I think, very important, it's a bit older. It's written by uh, Adam Orschild. Uh, he's a journalist and an historian, uh, and the title is King's Leopold's Ghost. And uh, it provides a, essentially a historical account of, of the establishment of the Congo Free State uh, by King Leopold II and the uh, atrocities that were committed uh, you know, during the entire 20 years uh, of the Congo Free State in order to extract natural resources. So in that case, it was the rubber plantations due to you know, invention of, of the tire in Europe uh, made uh, rubber very uh, valuable. But essentially, you know, up to 10 million Congolese died in the exploitation of, of rubber. And in my opinion, it shows how damaging and, and even deadly you know, bad governance can be and that very often, you know, the question of good and bad governance is, is tightly connected to question about government revenue. In that case, it's natural resources, but it can be something uh, else. Uh, and so I thought that's uh, an important uh, a book to mention, both for the historical event and the atrocities that were committed, but also for the underlying questions. Thank you so much, Augustin, for your time. It was super interesting. Thanks for having me. It was uh, really fun to talk with you. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clémentine Van Effenter in Toronto. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.